Isabella L. Price back for another episode. This actually is a very special episode. I know that a lot of people are inside right now, bored to tears, kind of wondering what's going on in the world, and I was thinking about what else can I do besides the normal kind of programming that I always have of interviews, and I thought about doing this, which is uh, just some readings of some short horror things and um, kind of some other supplementary sort of things so that you're you're not bored to death I guess this short story is by uh, my friend James he uh, is a fantastic writer and a uh, great collaborator he works on a lot of different projects including games and web series and things like that and he wrote this story uh, that I really fell in love with called bones and I recorded it and published it on my YouTube channel but I thought about also publishing it here as well just as you know just something else a little spice add up a little something different um so hopefully I'll be able to do more of these uh just kind of other programming other things other than um interviews that I normally do. I hope that you guys are doing well and I hope that you guys are washing your hands and you're inside and you're safe and you're not um, going to beaches or movie theaters or anything like that. Please don't go outside. Um, I'm around. I'm still on uh, Nocturnal Emissions uh, on Facebook at Knock and Miss on uh, Twitter and if you like this show, please consider subscribing to uh, Patreon. Uh, you can also donate through the link at, in the show notes as well. So if you like this, consider giving out to your local spooky witch podcaster. <laughs> no pressure or anything. I uh, hope you guys are well and enjoy. by J.F. Sobrano. The historian picked Dennis Gula up in his 72 Ford Escort, which he told him he bought with his first Navy paycheck. They were on a trek to the south side of town where, legend had it, a buffet breakfast joint of inexpressible quality was tucked into the side of the Eagle's Lounge. They drove through the historic part of town, Throughout the ride, the historian proudly pointed out the old post office, the old St. Edward's Church, and the old county jail. He had a story for each of them. The post office was guilty of destroying his grandmother's birth certificate. The daughter of the bishop had gotten pregnant and had a child out of wedlock. Old Clapper, the sheriff for 30 years before he retired, had built the jail with his own tenacity and sweat. Danis Gula listened with sincere interest. He was from out of town and knew next to nothing about it, and although the history lesson bordered on gossip and exaggeration, it was more than he had ever heard about any of these places, clearly important to the historian. As it turned out, the Lodge Buffet had closed down a few years earlier. To the historian's disappointment, they altered their compasses and drove downtown. Another decades-old restaurant resided there and had aged like fine wine waiting for them in a chilly coastal cellar. They drove now through the newer parts of town. They were forced to wind through the more modern and tightly packed districts and roads were considerably more congested. The historian's legend-shaping good mood soured dramatically as the escort slowed to a crawl. Their relationship was born relatively recently over shared cigarettes outside the library. Dennis Gula 
did not know the historian well enough to know the protocol for successfully navigating a foul temper, and nervously fidgeted with the fringe of his sleeves. He tried to ease the tension by asking more questions about the town's history. Most of the buildings downtown loomed droll and boxy, with glowing neon signs and acres of cracked asphalt parking lots surrounding them. The historian had little to share on their importance. He tersely explained that most of the downtown district had been empty fields up until about 50 years ago. He took a sudden turn into a tight parking lot behind a hairdresser and nail salon. Close enough, he declared. His seatbelt snapped open and slithered back into the hiding as he exited the escort. Then Gula stepped out into the salty June air. The second choice, aged breakfast diner, was only another block and a half away, and he lagged behind the historian's hurried march as he attempted to scrape together a few more minutes to find out what caused the traffic. Dennis Gula was a terrible rubbernecker. He told himself this was excusable because someone should be able to describe the events of accidents and tragedies, but he knew it was not excusable, and regularly begged the forgiveness of the thousands who had cursed his eyes over the years. Although Dennis Gula did his best to scan the roads for any sign of the accident, he found nothing. When he stepped into the restaurant, he beelined for the restroom. His bladder reminded him that the time of their trip had doubled as they crisscrossed the town. When he rejoined the historian, he was looking much more at ease. He offered Dennis Gula a double-wide, lopsided grin. "'Have a seat, Tennis,' he said. "'Am I saying that right? Tennis? Tennis Cola? What's that mean, who?" Dennis Gula eased himself into his seat, mentally preparing himself for this familiar conversation. It's Dennis Gula. It means, oh, whatever. I'll call you Timothy. I heard young Miss Lavelle at the library calling you that. What works for the gander works for the goose. The historian laughed, covering his instinctual fear of the strange and potentially mystic with bombastic misplaced humor. A lot of people call me that, Dennis Gula said, earring on the safe side of the constant debate over his name. The hostess come waitress sidled up to the table, inattentive to them and focusing on a conversation with another person. Found bodies in the construction site. Turn them up pretty bad, too. Cause they're found with a backhoe. She set down a mug before the historian and beamed at Dennis Gula, while filling it full of steaming coffee. What do you want to drink, honey? She asked Dennis Gula. What's going on with the construction? The historian asked before Dennis Gula could respond. He asked eagerly, Someone get murdered? No, nothing like that, dear. They figure it's an old burial ground. They called in the anthropologists and the tribe and everything. I'm just glad it's a few blocks over. Don't know what a haunting would do for business, but it sure wouldn't be good. The hostess laughed. The historian laughed. Dennis Gula looked at the menu. Honey? The hostess asked again. What are you drinking? Oh, orange juice would be great, said Dennis Gula. He was only twenty years old, but that was more than enough time to learn to bite your tongue in Indian years. The hostess wrote down his drink and left for the kitchen. See, that whole law is just ridiculous, the historian started. The pleasant change must have been feigned because he grew petulant again. All this traffic has hurt business. The economy is so fragile with that socialist in office, and they're over there putting bones before people. What law? Dennis Kula asked, still focusing his eyes on the menu. That they have to let the anthropologist and every single Indian who might possibly have some blood linked to the situation in there and look at the bones before they can continue construction. They got half a Main Street tore up and the anthropologist is just going to say they got to tear it up even more to get all of them up and out of there. People's livelihoods are at stake for gosh stakes. Dennis Gula held his breath. 
He looked down at his fork and slid his finger along the smooth metal handle. He knew what he wanted to say, but questioned the worthiness of the fight. The historian was treating him to breakfast and was his ride home. He did not want to say something that would make the morning any more uncomfortable than it already was. Well, Dennis Gula said hesitantly, many tribes, including mine, have a strong reverence for the remains of our ancestors. Dennis Gula hoped that the comment was subtle enough. He was trying to not look the historian in the eye, but he caught the uncertainty in his face. What if someone dug up your grandparents to build a mall and didn't let you go in there and move the body safely? The uncertainty stilled to resolution. Dennis Gula recognized that he had pushed too much. I'd let him keep digging, of course. That's the past, and this is now. Why would I dwell on that and hurt people? Besides, if you go back far enough, we're all related. Them bones are as much my ancestors as anyone else's. Dennis Gula tightened his teeth and spread his lips until the Beck's approximation of a smile that he could possibly muster was summed up. He stood up and excused himself to the buffet to collect his breakfast. By the time he returned to his seat, his orange juice had arrived and the historian was ready to share every single detail of the history of the downtown district that he could drum up. It was closely related to the history of the naval base, which was personal to him. He had pride in this history. The food was delicious, if not legendary. Dennis Gula declined the offer of a ride home from the historian, claiming a desire to appreciate everything the historian saw in the city, when in reality he needed to draw some distance between himself and the frustration that the historian inspired in him. He wound his way through the snarls of traffic like a snake slithering through a clump of roots. Car horns bleated like drums, and road rage rose like ocean spray against the stones of old buildings. The old graveyard was centrally located, but hardly more than an alley that had been set aside to respect the founders of the city, as most of them were buried there. Next door, the original little Protestant chapel no longer stood. The historian knew the date that it was torn down, and all the names of the people who had attended, including his own great-grandfather and the ancestors of the politician. Now it was a boxy relic, rendered in the Old West style with an ornate facade and sun-bleached wood paneling and lettering that it titled Summer's Depot. Temporary chain-link fenced off the area around Sumner's Depot, the urban indication of ownership. Dennis Kula noticed that an image of the politician was plastered, bigger than life, in order to remind the people of the city of his importance on the walls of Sumner's Depot, opposite the old graveyard. He smiled and winked and made promises in peeling paint. Although the signs warned him away, Dennis Kula hopped the gate easily, landing on the muddy ground on the opposite side. As the historian had promised, torn-up asphalt and concrete were left in a state of disarray, revealing the raw earth below, which had been cordoned off precisely in squares of red nylon. Then Asgula crept his way through the old graveyard, careful not to desecrate the little squares or any of the historian's ancestors. He heard voices coming from the earth, but more important to his curiosity were the voices coming from the depot. Several people clustered about a deep hole in the earth filled with little colored flags. Dennis Gula recognized Mrs. Caillou as one of the local tribal leaders who often sang about fishing and treaty rights. Miss Caillou was appropriately dressed in a leather biker jacket with red, white, black, and yellow medicine wheel patch sewn into the back. Her jeans were covered in mud. Her long beak of a nose was bruised and black. The spider-legged man weaving red nylon thread in his fingers was the anthropologist. 
He was tall and bent and glowing with fierce intelligence and authority. The anthropologist stooped over Mrs. Caillou and wove his blood-colored web. Of course, ma'am, we restore every bone and artifact in the museum and treat them with dignity and respect before they are placed behind glass for their protection. Miss Caillou shook her head and muttered in her language. The anthropologist's eyes lit up like hungry fires. Both of them noticed Dennis Gula standing there, and when their attention shifted, so did all of the little helpers who clustered around them. You! Boy! Child! Hoodlum! You do not belong on my precious archaeological site! You will damage the artifacts! You will snap the bones! You will spread chaos and destruction! The anthropologist unwound slowly, spreading his limbs threateningly, paralyzing poison dripped from his fangs. Then as Gula backed away, receding into the shadows of the old graveyard, Mrs. Caillou stepped between him and the anthropologist, knocking at his chest with her beak. He has as much right to be here as I do, and more than you do. Put your petty palps away, anthropologist. Put your little red web away. This will go no further until the council has convened, Miss Caillou said. The anthropologist recoiled both from Miss Caillou and her insistence that she needed more time. We do not even know for certain who these bones belong to, he roared, waving his limbs around widely and uselessly. Don't bullshit me, anthropologist, Miss Caillou said. And then to her black-feathered-haired children, let's go. And then to Dennis Gula, you too. Miss Caillou, the anthropologist, and all the others disappeared with the sunset. But, despite Mrs. Caillou's clear orders, Dennis Gula remained behind. He knew it was not a respectful choice, but even after they left, he heard tongues wagging and teeth clacking in the ground. And as mentioned previously, Dennis Gula was an atrocious rubbernecker. The moon was high in the sky, pregnant and bountiful, and the living city grew silent when she claimed the world. The muffled murmurs became proud songs and stomping feet. Dennis Gula wandered back to the hole in the ground that the construction workers and the anthropologists had left behind. Maybe there are hidden parties, Dennis Gula thought. And although he would normally seek them out to join them, he knew that this was not the right time or place. He tiptoed through the old graveyard once more, accidentally knocking over a bucket and trowel that the anthropologist had left behind on a headstone. The ruckus did not interrupt the singing or the music. There was certainly music drums, at the very least. Wet mud squelched at Dennis Gula's feet. You need to get out of here, Dennis Gula said. I'm calling the police. He turned the corner, mud sucking at his shoes. They were dancing. Seven of them danced in a line, stamping their feet and howling with what sounded to Dennis Gula like laughter, but they were not wearing anything. Nothing. They did not have any clothes on. They did not have any skin on. They did not have any meat on. The bones danced. They danced and laughed. Dennis Gula took a step back, turning to run. The mud refused to let his shoe free, and he could not get it out. He pulled his foot out of the shoe and ran, in one muddy sock, back towards the fence. Before he got there, one of them stepped in front of him. Long black hair clung to its skull, but the black was full of wild gray strands. It shoved one bony hand against his chest. He could feel the dryness through his shirt. Where are you going? It howled. Dennis Gula was not certain if it was laughing or enraged. You just got here. The party just started. 
I didn't mean to interrupt, Dennis Kula stammered. We threw it just for you. The skeleton howled in his face, shoving at his chest again and taking him by the shoulder, steering him around and dragging him back to the skeleton party. Everywhere the skeleton touched him, his skin felt dry and stiff. His shirt, now in rags, fell off him like a dust shaken off of a rug. His skin itched and flaked off where the skeleton touched him. It did not hurt, but Dennis Kula was terrified. Barely conscious of his one muddy, wet foot, he marched at the behest of his captor back to the party where the rest of the skeletons shrieked and danced. One of them wrapped its knuckles against a chunk of slattered concrete, drumming a beat to dance to. Come dance with us, Tanas Gula. The black-haired skeleton shoved him at the dancers. I, I, I don't want to dance, he said as they began to dance a circle around him, spinning like a vortex. He looked up at the sky, which was red. The fat-bellied moon hung heavy and black. Am I, am I dead? Tanas Gula asked. The skeleton screamed. They laughed. They danced until he grew dizzy. You're not dead, one of them whooped. We are, sang another as it leapt through the air. And you will be, screamed the skeleton with the wild black hair. It wrapped its sharp, unyielding finger bones around Tanaskula's hand, pinching and freezing them. It spun him in circles. He felt sick, and it was all he could do to keep from vomiting. They danced for hours. Once, Dennis Kula tried to find his cell phone to check the time, but all of his clothes had melted off of him, and it was nowhere to be found. He fell so many times that he ended up covered in head to toe with mud. The skeletons shrieked and laughed until the drumbeat finally ceased, and they ushered him, exhausted, to have a seat at their table, fashioned from a large slab of asphalt. It was covered with clay pots and baskets and silver trays. Skeleton arms protruded from the table and moved the dishes around and served up full plates and poured brimming drinks. Exhaustion, hunger, and terror soaked through Dennis Gula's bones. He wanted to escape, but did not have even the strength to sit up straight. He dug into the food with his hands without even bothering to look at it. He coughed up dried-up leaves, quickly swallowing from his cup to wash them out of his mouth. He spat again, for his cup was filled with salt water. "'What are you feeding me?' Dennis Kula sobbed. "'What are you crying about?' held a feast for you. Why would you cry? These are our best dishes. We worked hours preparing for you. Did you even bring any food? It's dry leaves and ocean water. It's disgusting, Dennis Gula cried. The skeletons ate and drank and ignored his frustration. He looked through all the pots and trays for anything edible, but they were all filled with dry leaves or pine needles or wet brown grass. You're tired, one of the skeletons said. This one had hair as well. It was also black, but cut short in absence of all the gray, if still wispy and thin. Come sleep in my family's house. The other skeletons howled and laughed and threw their drinks at Dennis Kula, soaking him in salt water. He still cried quietly, but was too sore and tired to resist as the skeleton dragged him to its house. Holes riddled the wooden walls, and a terrible chill whipped through the house on a breeze. The skeleton led him towards a rotten old rug and laid him down on it. Isn't that nice? It bellowed. It smelled like mildew and rotting flesh. Then Eskula nodded and closed his eyes. You need to take off your clothes to ruin them. The skeleton wiped the mud from his body with a razor-sharp hand. 
Then Asgula felt like his skin was being peeled from his muscles. Exhaustion kept him from resisting it. I will keep you warm tonight, the skeleton promised in its hollow, vacuous voice. It lay beside him, sapping the last of his warmth and strength from him and pulled another moldy rug over them. Despite his misery, Denazgula nearly fell asleep when he realized that the skeleton had crawled on top of him. It grazed its teeth over its neck and lips. What are you? But he knew what it was doing, and despite how miserable he was, he reacted as if he was being kissed with fleshy lips. I don't even know your name, Teneskula panted stupidly. Yes, you do. Call me Klooch. Klooch. Teneskula slept blissfully. He was not by any means a lucid dreamer, but throughout his dreams he knew exactly where he was. He knew he dreamt. The nightmare had ended, and when he woke up, he knew he would be in his bed, tucked in warm blankets like an expertly wrapped gift. Most importantly, he would be warm. Dennis Gula woke up in the moldy rugs with Gucci's bones wrapped around him. Realization woke him. He did not dream. He felt refreshed, but his stomach snarled at him, and Gucci's bones drabbed into his soft parts. He untangled himself from the skeleton and tried to find clothes, but there were none. He wrapped himself in one of the awful-smelling rugs and went outside. Above him, a sunless sky shone sickly pink. All around him, trees sprouted like dusty, creaking weeds. Skeletons sang and howled and shrieked and laughed and danced and made their way to and fro. He saw the skeleton with long black hair and ducked back into Klooch's house. She was awake, her empty eye sockets stared through his soul. Are you going to go out like that? Put your clothes on. I made them myself. A voice bellowed outside. Dennis Gula could not make out from the other. Gooch, get that boy out in the canoes. I want you to help with the fishing, she said. Pulling the rug from his shoulders, her cold digits slid down toward his groin. He pulled away in fear and revulsion. Fear of her and revulsion of himself. I'll dress you, she offered. Glitch slathered Dennis Kula with mud until only his face was clean. She tried to make him eat a pile of pebbles and sticks for breakfast, but he left before they could be forced upon him. The skeleton with the long black hair stuck its head to Glitch's house. Dennis Kula, let's go. We'll miss the fish. Starved and out of place, Dennis Kula wanted to find a way home. He had never been fishing in his life and had no interest in it. On the other hand, he wondered if a canoe might be the key to getting home. He went with the skeleton whose name he discovered was Burnt Face. Why is your name Burnt Face? he asked. Isn't it obvious? Burnt Face laughed. Dennis Kula stared at his pale, bony skeleton face. No. Burnt Face laughed as they set out in the canoe with other skeletons who laughed at Dennis Kula too. He did not know how to use the nets, but they taught him. He threw his nets and pulled them in. The first time he pulled in a pile of seaweed. Disgusted, Dennis Gula threw the seaweed back into the water. He put his nets in again. You've made Gulich very happy. You don't know how long she's been waiting for you, Dennis Gula, Burntface said to him. A century? guessed Dennis Gula. He began to realize that all of the screaming and howling was just the way their voice sounded. 
Good guess. That's not far off. Brenface bellowed with a laugh. And here I be telling everyone how stupid you are. Danaskula pulled in another gnat full of seaweed and dumped it back into the ocean. The other skeleton stared at him, but without faces. He could not tell why. I'm still not sure about that, Brentface said with another howl of laughter. They spent all day on the water. The sky shifted from its watered-down bloody color to the color of a weak old bruise to the color of meat left out in the sun. The black moon rose in the sky. When they pulled the canoes back in, Danuskula did not yet have a plan of escape. He had not caught any fish either. His nets pulled in nothing but seaweed all day. His stomach churned and hissed angrily at him. Klooch waited for him at the shore and ran into his arms. How did you do? She asked. Brentface answered for him. He caught enough fish to feed the whole town for a month. Where are they? Klooch asked, looking around with black hole eyes. The skeletons laughed and laughed. Between trying to catch their breath, they managed out between the three of them. He threw them all back out into the sea. The celebrations continued that night. Danaskula only danced with Klooch and let her lead him along and hold him up. She tried to get him to eat, but it was all seaweed and branches, and he vomited behind the table. After dinner, while Danaskula rested on a crumbled pile of bricks, which were more comfortable than being touched by the dead, Brentface stood on the table. Attention, attention, he called to the cheering and screaming of the skeletons. Tomorrow is going to be an important day. Our family will grow by one, and more, if we're lucky. All the skeletons laughed, and Gooch stared at the ground. I know it's a day early, Brentface said, turning his empty eyes to Dennis Gula. But I wanted to welcome Dennis Gula into the family. He is a terrible fisherman. The skeletons erupted in more howls of laughter. But as long as he doesn't throw Gooch into the sea, he's going to be a wonderful husband. Danaskula did not know why he was surprised. Klooch sat in his lap, grazing her teeth across his lips hard enough to draw blood. Everyone cheered and Danaskula nearly vomited again. He picked Klooch up. She weighed almost nothing, and with what little strength he had, he dashed toward her house with her in his arms. All the skeletons cheered. He heard Burnt Face call out, Look how eager he is! I'm glad Klooch isn't a fish! Danaskula slammed the door behind him with his foot and put Klooch down, crossing the room to stand on the opposite end. What? he demanded of her. We're getting married tomorrow! She howled happily. What? I, I, are you angry with me? Klooch, you're dead! I'm not! he said. But you will be! We could do it now if you want! I could cut your throat! We could go out to sea and I could hold you under the water until you drowned. I don't want to be dead, he protested. Klooch went silent then. Danaskula screamed and raved and ranted, but she had nothing else to say to him. Eventually, she went to lay down in the mildew rugs without him. He left to look for the canoe. Rows of canoe lined the shore, which gave him a choice. He did not know where he was going to go, but his mind was made up. Getting away was better than staying, no matter where he ended up. He pulled one of the canoes out to water and got in. It sank immediately. He did not care about the canoes. He did not even try to rescue it. He pulled out another one, but it sank too. He checked through the rows and realized that every single canoe was full of holes. 
He pulled them all out to sea and let them sink. He stomped back angrily and got under the covers with Klooch. There was no way to tell if she was awake or not, but she did not move. Then Anskula went to sleep. Brittle branches dropping into Denizkula shook him awake. He sat up with a start, throwing the rugs off. Klooch crouched before him. She held a bleached finger bone in front of her teeth. He pulled away from her grip. He watched as she went to the door and poked her skull outside, watching for a long time before calling him over. He stood up and came to her side. She did not explain anything. She spoke not a single word. She crouched along the side of her house and bid Denizkula to follow. She kept close to the house until they came to the shivering pines, pale and anxious. She ducked into the woods and pulled Dennis Kula with her. This is the way home. If you walk straight from here, you will find a river full of salmon. Follow it downstream and you will be fine. Even her whispers felt harsh and unpleasant to his ears. Why are you helping me? Gucci looked back towards the village. She did not look back at Dennis Kula. You do not belong here. I love you. But you are not one of us. You should never have come here. Can you take me to the stream? asked Teneskula. I can't go with you. I don't belong there either. Just to the stream? Oh no! Gluchis. Teneskula followed her gaze. He saw a number of skeletons riding skeleton steeds. The riders came upon them quickly. The dead horses struck up a cloud of milky dust and Teneskula could see burnt face at the head of them, framed like a torch by its flame. Run! Klooch shoved Teneskula away, pushing him into the trees. Teneskula hesitated, either paralyzed by pure terror or out of some loyalty to Klooch, but he was not sure which. The riders spread out semicircle around them, burnt face in the middle. He guided his great bleached steed forward, hooves cracking branches like bones. Where are you going, Teneskula? Your home is back here. Have you gotten lost with your wife? Burntface, he does not belong here. He is not dead, pleaded Gooch. He will be, said Burntface. He will be, howled the other skeletons. He will be, preached the politician. He will be, screamed the anthropologist. He will be, shrieked the historian. The politician picked up the first stone. But the rest followed his lead and pelted Dennis Kula and Klooch with him. The stones bounced harmlessly off her, but they battered and bruised Dennis Kula. One hit him just above the eye and began to bleed so profusely that he could no longer see. He turned to find cover in the trees. Klooch's brittle fingers still in hand, she ran with him. He heard peals of laughter, shouting, and the echoing neighs of the skeleton steeds as they ran. He stumbled and fell and rammed himself into trees and underbrush. When Cloach realized that his vision was impaired, she took over and led him through the trees. Even though he was blinded, Danazgula heard the babbling sound of running water ahead of them. The dead were still on their heels. The ground shook beneath the clattering hoofs of the dead horses. The anthropologist skittered through the treetops, and the historian shouted from the top of his tank as it bulldozed trees into the earth below it. Dennis Gula tripped and fell full face first into the stream. Luch pulled him up and pushed him ahead. Go now, run! Dennis Gula did not linger this time. He ran into the stream, slipping on patches of algae and weeds, but keeping to his feet. He heard a terrible smashing and crunching behind him and turned. The horses and the historian's tank 
and the politicians' litter had stopped at the edge of the stream. They stood still. The riders looked down, and the politicians shouted about civilization, while the anthropologists rove a great bloody web in the branches. Klutch's bones lay half in and half out of the stream. Where her skull should have been was a massive stone surrounded by shards of bone. Then as Kulik turned and ran. The blood kept flowing down his forehead, and he desperately wiped it away as he ran. He tripped again and stumbled over a ledge, falling through cutting brush and vine until he found himself sitting in the mud, covered from head to toe in filth and bruises. His palms burned. He opened his left hand and saw his muddy cell phone, blinking the time at him. 2.39 a.m. He opened up his other palm and found a fistful of finger bones. He looked around and saw that he was in the hole behind Sumner's depot. He wore only one shoe. His other was still swallowed up by the mud. He pulled it out and put it on. He climbed over the fence and went home, where he took a long shower and ate half of the contents of his fridge. The historian called him again the following Monday. He called to apologize about his attitude about the traffic and offered to take Dennis Kula out to breakfast again. Tanaskula told him not to apologize about the traffic, and strongly considered declining breakfast, but free food was difficult to turn down. The historian's attitude was better, despite the fact that the traffic was still awful. The historian went on, as usual, about the history of the town and the people who had built it. Tanaskula asked him about the people who had lived there before. No one really knows anything about that, just a bunch of people guessing and holding grudges. I got nothing against you, Timothy. But there was a war, and that war's over. My ancestors were on the winning side, and yours were on the losing side. We all just need to get over it. War happens, but now we're all friends. Dennis Kula listened, and allowed the historian's lecture to drift past him. He opened up his hand and looked at the bones he still carried in his palm. I have to go, Dennis Kula said. You have finished. Where are you going? It won't take long. Tennis Kula left the restaurant and walked a short distance to the construction site and climbed the gate once more. The site was empty. The construction workers were not permitted to return until the anthropologists and tribal council were done excavating. Tennis Kula slipped through the old graveyard and around the back at Sumner's depot. He climbed down into the muddy hole. His foot caught on a bit of red nylon string. He pulled all of it up, disentangling the web. At the bottom of the hole, he found a smashed-up skull attached to a skeleton, which was missing its finger bones. He put them back where they belonged. A raven cawed overhead.